Welcome to the UNT MindSpark podcast. Today's segment is going to be Maker Life Stories. I'm your host, Jared Johnson, and joining me today will be Peter from Hack RVA over in Richmond, Virginia. How are you doing today, Peter? I'm all right. Uh, works uh, busy as ever, but overall, I'm, I'm not too bad. Hey, that's good to hear. So, uh, one of the main things that prompted us to invite you on the show is you were one of the main people behind the RVA badges at the 2020 RVA Security Conference. Uh, can you tell me just a bit about the creation of those? Yeah, so we spend about six months building, designing and building those badges for RVA Sec every year. Um, Jake and Chris came to us a, a while back and they uh, basically just wanted to have a badge like all the other cool security conferences. <laughs> um, so we design it, um, we build them we by hand at the moment. Um, we build about 350 to 400 of them, which is quite a bit of work. It ends up being about uh, six to eight Sundays worth of work, just building them and testing them and, and getting them all ready to go. Um, and in addition to that, we also have our own set of firmware that we've written um, this year. We had to port it to um, to the new Raspberry Pi we had been mm -hmm. running on a Pic32 before. Um, so uh, they're they're just you know it's a it's a good it's our big electronics projects for the year, and we try and mm -hmm. get as many people involved as possible. Okay, yeah. Uh, so you said you were moving them to the new Raspberry Pi. Is that like a Raspberry Pi four or what specifically? Yeah, so we're not quite that that bougie. The budget's really tight, so <laughs> we're actually on a, a Raspberry Pi Pico. Okay. And um, not the W. I know that's out now, but we um, we moved to that this year because we had uh, started to run up against some of the limitations of the Pic32 platform. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it really really made a lot of improvements. Our battery life is much better, and our performance is much better as well. Oh, all right. So what was one of the biggest challenges you had to overcome when creating the badges? Well, you know, you ask about that. Um, this year, I think one of the, absolutely one of the biggest ones was just porting all that code. Um, it's a very different platform. Um, and I, I, I was fortunate to have a good uh, guy to just let run that. Um, Sam, I don't remember his last name off the top of my head, but Sam took a uh, Took charge of that and he got most everything ported and we all had to clean up a little bit of stuff at the end depending on for our particular apps that we were in charge of but um that was a really big challenge uh i'd actually say that the bigger challenge for th that was a lot of work it wasn't really mm -hmm. a, i would say a, a really difficult technical challenge or a really um complicated challenge this year in particular um we actually had a lot of issues with the budget the budget is tight um it's 15 dollars mm. per badge which is oh. pretty slim and um historically that's not been as much of an issue because there's always um you know parts that are obsolete or surplus somewhere around digikey right. but this year with <laughs> especially with um just the electronics part shortages everything's more expensive and there's a lot less options out there so one of the reasons we went with the Pico was that it, it, it allowed us to not have to buy a boost converter from mm. a, uh, th that it was external because it has a, a buck boost on it. Um, so there was a lot of design work around, um, I think, getting under budget and making sure that we weren't spending too much money. Oh, we did splurge on a, on a couple things this year. Uh, we used to make the boards by hand, but there are a lot of problems with that. So this year we went and actually got them fabbed. Um, and 
but the budget is really, really difficult. And there's a lot of arguments that spring up around what we can and can't have on the badge. Right. Yeah. That's, that tends to be where most arguments come from. <laughs> right. Right. Like, you know, we, we wanted for a long time to, to put Bluetooth on the badge, but the bottom line is that that a module that can do Bluetooth that also has the memory uh, requirement, it fills our memory requirements for the frame buffer mm-hmm. for the graphics. Um, all of those are, you know, six to eight dollars, and that's yeah, that's, that's their entire budget right there. Exactly. Right now, the, the Pico, by comp, uh, in comparison, is you know four dollars. So it's about double the price for the MCU itself. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so, what did it feel like when you actually finished making the badges? Um, you know, I. So normally we are pretty. Uh, tight at the end in terms of schedule. Um, in the years past, we've been doing everything from, uh, you know, trying to source enough badges to, you know, because we hadn't had enough that w- were successful when they ran through the line mm-hmm. or uh, making changes the Wednesday before the Thursday conference on the firmware. And we have to reflash everything, right. but we were, uh, I tried to be ahead of schedule this year. And a lot of the changes that I, I made now that this year is my, my first year were geared towards that goal of not having to struggle at the end. And so it wasn't a surprise to me that we were um, ahead of time. It, it was, it was a little, a little bit of a relief, but I wasn't really all that worried about it. I, I will tell you though, that it felt, there was a, a moment when, we had I built the dev badges in in February, mm-hmm. and we had handed them out to people. And I had heard some things back from one person, and some things back from another person. And um, I knew that they were making progress, but I hadn't seen, you know, the firmware on the badge. I hadn't really taken part of that. And we got to a point where um, some it was starting to be built, and somebody you know came in on one of our community open house nights at the makerspace, and they had the badge this year, the new badge, mm-hmm. and the firmware was running on it and um, all the bits and pe- the new bits and pieces were working. And um, I was really, it was, it was so great that I was able to, as a team, it had like come to fruition right. and it existed and it, it was working so, so well. I mean, we used to have a really hard time with the screen because we bit banged the whole interface mm. and that was really slow. And this year we actually have a controller and the performance to do um, all the graphics that we wanted. And so comparatively, you know, it was like, it's, it's essentially we were running at, you know, 10 FPS before on a good day. <laughs> and we're we, this, this year we're a solid 60 FPS. So oh, it was wow. a huge improvement. Um, and with that, we had headroom to spare so we could do a lot better graphics and everything was just so smooth. And it was, it was so gratifying that I was able to do my part as the hardware designer, do a little bit of the firmware. Sam did his part when it came to, you know, porting all the code. And then Steven had ported some of the apps, specific things and gotten the app that we were looking at working because mm-hmm. it was one of his apps. And it was just great to see everything come together and to know that I, not only that, you know, I, it wasn't that I did this, it was that I and other people did this. Right. And right. it was really, really satisfying to see that all come together. The satisfaction of having a whole team working on one project and then all of those combined efforts creating that, you know, finished product at the end. Yeah, absolutely. So my next question for you is, if you had to do it all over again, what would you change? Oh, that's really hard. Um, 
I really wish we had not had to go with double A batteries. Um, mm. We had to go with double batteries because we made the the compromise to get rid of the external boost converter mm-hmm. um, and use what was on the Pico. The problem with the buck boost that's on the Pico is that it requires a minimum of, I think, 2.5 volts, okay. which you can't get out of a single double A. Yeah. Um, and so we went with two triple A's to get that uh, capability. But th- of all the, there were, I think maybe 10 failures that we had at the conference. And I'd say eight of them had to do with, um, the, the battery clips bending and shorting oh. across. The um, and they also took up a lot of board space. And when I started to look at it as a postmortem, I was starting to realize that, well, you know, they're not that cheap and we're really, we're only about 50 cents, you know, away from just going to like, uh, I think they're CR 123s, they're lithium three volt batteries Oh yeah, yeah. Um, for cameras. And, um, that would be just such an unbelievable wealth of power (laughs) for the, for the badge. And um, it would alleviate that problem. And I think it would tighten up the design a bit Mm -hmm. at the same time. It's hard to say for sure that it would be worth doing or, or not that it wouldn't be worth doing. It's hard to say that we could do it because 50 cents is not it seems like oh that's not that much money but i don't have 50 cents in the budget to make that make that leap right. but i still think i would maybe drop another feature well i ended up i ended up about 50 to 50 cents to a dollar under budget anyway this year mm-hmm. um, so i could have done that had i had i thought about it ahead of time but i don't think i'll do those those double triple a's at least not in that configuration again because right. it's it's not practical yeah and i feel like something a lot of people don't understand is like oh 50 cents but whenever you scaled it up to 350 badges, right. that 50 cents adds up. Right, right. And, and, you know, there are some things you don't have to care about. Like resistors, you really don't have to care about. I yeah. mean, I think all the passives on the board are less than 50 cents or maybe a dollar or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Oh, there was one that was expensive. So it's probably about 75 cents. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, when, when your budget is $15, you know, all those big ticket items add up. I mean, the yeah, it just really adds up. Yeah, it definitely adds up very quick. So, as you are, in fact, a part of the Hack RVA makerspace, uh, can you tell us how it all got started? Like the makerspace itself? Yes, or the makerspace that? itself. You know, I I only know but so much of the ancient history of, of Hack <laughs> RVA. Um, I know that I think Skylar Roebuck and uh, Luke Librero ages ago, I think it was the two of them, they started Hacker VA as kind of a, a small commercial venture. And I know that we spawned out of that. At some point, we went from being a, a, a an LLC to a nonprofit incorporated entity. Mm-hmm. Um, probably about a decade ago, maybe a little bit more than a decade ago. Um, and at that time, I would say we had maybe eight to 10 members. Uh, most, uh, I'd say about most of, yeah, I'd say most of whom are still around now um and they were working out of like a like an eight and a half by 11 you know you can fit two six foot tables in yeah space um and it was really at that time it was a collection of largely a collection of um electronics hackers mm-hmm. and over the years it we've grown to include um 3d printing um 
a, a lot of woodworking. Our, our woodworking shop is now most of our square footage. Oh, yeah. And um, that all started, I think, out of um, a passion. But really, I think one or two of our members had a passion for woodworking and they wanted it to be something that we, they did. We started doing metalworking for a while until uh, the, the permit laws changed and we couldn't do that anymore. And um, so, it, but it really got started out of, a, a, I think, a small group of people who just really liked building things mm-hmm. and really wanted to learn new ways of building things. That was, I know, a big focus um, when about 10 years ago when that was all really starting. Okay. Um, and that was about the time that we started doing the badges as well. You know, it was, mm. it was we, we knew Chris and Jake somehow. I don't know exactly. I think they were friends of Morgan's. And we started, we started with a very, very crappy badge. And over the years, we've gotten, you know, better and better and better at it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's always good to hear because if you're not making progress, then what's the point? Right. And it's, it's kind of crazy that we have gotten better because I think we're, I'm the fifth person to design the badge, hmm. maybe fourth or fifth. And as over the course of, you know, a decade or so, um, there's some arguments about wh- how many RVA sex there they've, they've been in which year of RVA sex that is, but it's somewhere around the decade mark. And, it's hard to keep that sort of, you know, um, I don't know the right term for this, but, you know, institutional knowledge, I guess. Right. right. From all those years. Uh, so speaking of um, Hacker VA, uh, what do you love most about the makerspace? Oh, I, I think my absolute favorite part of it is just how many things I've been exposed to and how many opportunities I've had, have, have, I've had to learn and grow. Hmm. Um when I, I started coming there when I moved to Richmond to go to school. And um, at that time, I, I really hadn't done a lot of programming. I hadn't done a lot of electronics. I really hadn't done that much woodworking. And um, over when I'm looking, when I look back at like, how did I get to where I am today? A lot of the skills I've learned have been from on the job at work. And a lot of it has been in my major, but things that don't fall into those two categories almost always involve having the opportunity to explore something at hack. Mm-hmm. And um, I really enjoy that. I can say, I want to do this thing. Does anybody know how to do it? And there's usually somebody who has an idea or has seen it on hack a day and can send me an article or stuff like that. And I've just learned so much from people there over the years who either are either learning themselves or are professionals who mm-hmm. enjoy it, doing it in their spare time. And uh, it's really great that now I'm in a position where I have some professional expertise and I can design the badge and I can share my knowledge and experience with other people at Hack. Right. And kind of on the flip side, what's your biggest frustration with the makerspace? You know, it's, we are, we are a nonprofit and we also don't have staff. Hmm. And so ultimately we are member run. And that's great to a certain extent because um, pretty much anyone can take charge and do anything within reason. Mm-hmm. And we have um, some, a pretty informal leadership structure to facilitate that. But it also means that sometimes there are things that you know we should do or that we would like to do or that would make things better. It's that it's very difficult to actually get done mm-hmm. just because just because it it's so hard to find somebody to volunteer. Right. Right. And so I think we, and sometimes that, you know, when, when it's something like, oh, we don't have maybe the smoothest onboarding experience, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, we can cover that or Mm -hmm. maybe the trash doesn't get taken out every, 
every single week and maybe we miss a week or something like that. Um, and that's one thing, but where I think it really starts to, to show up in ways that would surprise you or are really bad is there are some tools that when we bought them, you know, these are, you know, and we're talking, you know, five plus thousand dollar tools that we worked on and invested and we had a group of people who wanted it and would use it. Mm -hmm. You know, we bought them and we, we bought those tools. They started using it. They developed training and over, especially over COVID, you know, maybe we have one member who knows how to use that tool and they Mm -hmm. don't really like to train people all the time and they don't have the time to train people. And so because we don't have that sort of institutionalized because we don't have staff and we don't have somebody, you know, working full time to keep mm-hmm. things up on the up and up. Um, there are sometimes tools that, you know, you lose knowledge on or, you know, entire areas that, you know, somebody put their heart and soul into getting to where it is and they leave. And now there's kind of this vacuum, not of just of it being used. I mean, that doesn't really bother me, but that there's, it's, there's nobody who can just share about it. Right. So I, I've been trying to step into that as much as I can where I have the knowledge um, and take that on because I really feel responsibility to do that. But, um, you know, there's a limited amount of my time and there's a limited amount of other people who have you know the opportunity to do that. So it's always a struggle. Yeah, I've I've personally toured some other makerspaces around the Denton area, uh, specifically the Dallas makerspace, which I believe is a very similar situation to your guys's. Because they don't have staff and it's all volunteer based. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's funny that you bring up the Dallas Makerspace specifically because uh, they're really public about what they do, mm-hmm. and uh, like really, really public about yeah. what, what they do. And um, you know, we've we've had a lot of meetings about being that public about what we do, and we we our membership body is first example unwilling to have our cameras just be open um and and all that but they are we we borrow a lot from from what they do and some we've learned a lot a lot of small lessons from things that they've either posted about and talked about um over the years so and we do still some of their training for the woodshop (laughs) i think um uh, that's just because it's good i mean yeah if it's good use it (laughs) but um what is something you believe a lot of people don't realize when it comes to your specific makerspace? Um, you know, I, I am really, it's funny that you would say that in particular, because it, it really is just the effects of, you know, we don't have staff. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, I think there are a lot of people who come in with misconceptions about what a, a makerspace is mm-hmm. and, and what these sorts of communities um, offer the community. And I like, we've had people who've come in and said, Hey, can you guys design this thing? And they want to give us grant money to design something. And we're like, that's not yeah. what we do. Right. I mean, we can, we will happily, you know, do some education about that field if we have that, but we, we, we can't do that. And we also have people who, um, you know, come in and they, they kind of just want to, they, they think about it as just renting the tool. Yeah. And they don't understand that there is, you know, a community and they, mm-hmm. that people come in, I think, with a misconception about that uh, and, and that what a maker, what really makes a makerspace a makerspace is that people go there and they make and they talk about it and there's community around it. Right. right. So that you can learn from other people and, and so on and so forth. So um, I've had a, I know we've had a lot of trouble with people not understanding that it really is 
community first, especially in our case, I think is community first. And then maybe, you know, startup incubator or like idea incubator very much second. It's about people and teaching people and giving people the opportunity to make things and learn new things and grow more than it is about, I think the projects themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would completely agree. And I think that for our case personally here at the spark maker space, there is definitely a lot of people who have the same misconceptions regarding it. Like we have had several people come in and ask us to design projects for them and, or people that just come in to use the tools, but never, you know, talk with anyone. They just come in, rent the tool and then leave whenever they're finished. Like there's no community that's built around here. And that's something we're trying to work on with a discord that we're slowly starting to make, but that success will be told in due time. Yeah. And that, that's a, that's a fine balance. It really is because you're constantly fighting between, you know, it's not like we are unwilling to provide a service for people. You know, Mm -hmm. people ask, you know, one of the things we get a lot of people is they'll come in and they, you need a tool that we have or a small subset of, of tools that, um, they don't have access to, but we have either bought because they're expensive or, you know, that they're, they're all in one, one place and there's an appropriate space because they don't have space at home maybe. And they ask, you know, can, do you have any problem with somebody, you know, doing commercial work here? And what we always say is no, of course not. That's not, you know, we don't mind you coming and using the tools. Um, What's, what's difficult to balance there though is, figuring out how they're going to give back. Right. Right. Um, they come in, if, if somebody comes in and, uh, you know, uses the tools and, and never gives back and that, you know, we're not going to do anything about it really, but it does kind of leave a bad taste in your mouth when you think about it in the context of, you know, this is a, a, a community. Right. And, but we, we, I think really built community be, by having people work on projects and simply having a culture where people ask about other people's projects Mm. and 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 group projects i mean badges uh, involves i think the most people of any of our group projects and i mean there there are relationships forged around our time you know your time doing badge Mm -hmm. um that i think are really you know valuable oh yeah absolutely uh so now let's move on to more about you when did you realize you had a passion for electronics Okay, so I um I was actually a theater kid in high school. Same. And I I was big on the arts. And so I and I was big on technical theater. I was, I was pretty good at it. Mm-hmm. I I I I did some performance you know, on my own time, but that's not really what I did. I I really dove super deep into technical theater. Mm-hmm. Um and so I at the time really didn't have uh I, I knew I was interested in physics and things, but I always felt like I wasn't a technical person because I, I wasn't the kind of person that like took apart my radio, or I guess it was the <laughs> classic thing, but I, I didn't, ne- I never liked to disassemble things like that. Um, I mean, I liked Legos and creating things and I drew a lot and I was you know, creative, but I really didn't feel like I had that, you know, technical knack and prowess mm-hmm. to just tackle stuff. And, and actually when it came, so when it came time to, to go to college, um, I thought, okay, I'm really into this the- technical theater thing. I'm pretty good at it. Um, I, I knew sort of big fish, little pond sort of situation, you know, within your local high school community, but I, I knew that while I was getting good at it, I was going on professional gigs. And so I started looking at colleges and I looked at stuff. I looked at a lot of 
theater programs at technical universities to do dual degrees mm. um, in, you know, technical theater and then maybe some kind of, of science. I was really interested in material science at okay. that exact moment in time. And so I actually see, sir, suck, suck out, I guess, <laughs> yeah. whatever the right term for that is. But I, I went and searched for um, schools that had good things, both those. And the reality was I, I just wasn't a good enough student to get into any of those schools. <laughs> um, but I did end up applying to a couple theater programs, primarily in, in VCU theater program. And um, I was accepted. And so I ended up going and in, in, in doing that first. And I always knew oh, I could do some stuff at the side. Um, and actually in senior year for the first time ever, so, you know, my dad was a programmer in the 80s mm-hmm. and he always wanted me to get into programming or at least try it. And I tried a couple of times throughout my childhood career, but I never really liked it. And I ended up taking our like gen ed computer science course at high school, my senior year. And I was like, Oh my God, why did I put this off so long? I really started enjoying it, but I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was into electronics yet Mm. at that. Um, so I went off to college and I, I am, I didn't really clash with that. I I didn't really mesh with the theater folk. I kind of clashed with a lot of them because I just wasn't a hardcore theater and arts kid. I, I really had a lot of technical background I, I was big on math and nobody was really big on math in the theater department and um, I just kept finding that I was looking at technical problems um, in that world and I knew realized that I didn't have the rudiments that I needed mm. to to deal with them and I was starting to look at stuff like sound equipment um, really a lot of the consoles that people use I, right. I was really starting to understand how they you know, not maybe on a deep technical level, but how they worked and how you, we interacted with them. Right. And I didn't like a lot of the things. There was a lot of stuff where I was looking at it. I was like, why doesn't it do this? Um, why is it there this very silly uh, you know, interface that makes you do four things when you could just have one button yeah, exactly. or stuff like that. And I was really big on speakers because there are a lot of really bad speakers out there. And the reality is that once you reach about a grand per speaker, you can do so much stuff with it and the quality goes through the roof. And um, I really, but I really started looking at things I was going to build and I realized I didn't, that was how I think I got into electronics. Mm. Um, At least I think, or at least the engineering field. Mm -hmm. And I started realizing, okay, I need to go and take engineering courses. And I looked at it and I ended up switching to um, computer engineering in particular. And so I did a lot of that, but I don't think I was into electronics at that point in time. Mm. I think it was probably junior, like three years into having my, getting my degree mm-hmm. um, where, I mean, I was just three years into an electronics degree, <laughs> if you want to put it that way, but I wasn't, I didn't, I, I, did, I wasn't the kind of person who messed with Arduinos and ASP32s right. and all that. Like I, I wasn't doing that. Um, I really, enj- I knew what I was working on and working towards was signal processing. And I was really in the books about the math of that. And um I started, it was another like community group. There was a, we had a, um, a formula SAE group. I don't know if you, that is, but you basically make a formula style car as an engineering competition. Oh, okay. And, um, I wanted to make a digital dashboard and like engine, like computer. And I realized that was really, really hard, but that's how I started getting into it. And that's actually how I ended up um, in my job now. Um, cause I, these guys, basically the people I work for now basically did that sort okay. of thing. And I was like, I want to learn how to do that. And I started seeing, that was when I really started seeing practical applications for what I was doing. And, and um, we had a robotics like project that or that year as well. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was where I really started thinking like, oh, 
it's really cool when you like program something and then you like press go and then like a little robot just goes oh, and, and does, does the thing it, you told it to do. It was, exactly. It was so it's like, of course it does, but it's just so satisfying to see, you know, I think it's funny. It's like an artist statement. It's like so not so satisfying to see it come alive mm-hmm. after, you know, all the work you put into getting it there. Yeah. I think, um, so there's a very basic version of that, but um, are you familiar with the co-drone line of products? Nope. Okay, so basically it's um, drones that connect to a computer via Bluetooth, and there are multiple ways of programming them, either um, Blockly, which is just block coding, uh, I believe JavaScript, Python, and uh, one other that's escaping my mind right now. But basically, after you code it, you press go, and it flies. And that is the most satisfying thing that I have messed with. Of course, I have made like solar powered robot cars in a vague, very loose way of saying that term. Yeah. yeah. But there's just something satisfying about seeing it actually do what it is supposed to. Right. Absolutely. Do you know, I, I would say the other thing that got me into electronics and I, I hate, I, I feel like I'm harping a little bit too much on, on my own personal like electronics journey, but there was a, point in time oh gosh I, I it was probably a year after we started doing robots when what was i doing i was like out and about and i was in a hobby store because i liked i like i like grew up with model trains as a kid mm-hmm. and every time i'm near a hobby store and i have some time I'm like oh let's see if let's see how dead the <laughs> the, the hobby like train market is and it always is worse than i think it is <laughs> want to believe it is. but I, I went into like a hobby store and in the back they had like an rc car Mm. I, I was never big on on like i said i never took a part of radio i wasn't big right, on right. that and i'm uh, it's funny i work in an automotive job now but like <laughs> i'm not like our guy or anything and so i ended up I, I was like looking at what they were doing and i just started seeing all of the engineering things that you could do to make the car go faster and and, and really just refine it and um i you know we I, I, I had at that point, I had just taken my control systems course and things like that. And so I was seeing like, oh, you could stabilize that motion and get it to sit flat no matter what. And and you could model that. And I was, you know, microcontrollers have come so far now. I mean, the right. computing power that you can put, you know, in a, you know, something the size of a postage stamp that you can like hide and fit into that. Uh, it's just nuts. And so I really started to get into the idea of, of using electronics to like make things better. Mm-hmm. And, and that was, I, I, for the longest time, I, I didn't see how that could happen. Um, and now I, 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 I do see that. And it's, it's so, it's, it, it's so, it's good to have that appreciation and to mm-hmm. have some vision for like what I'm going to be doing with it. Right. And on the flip side, I can now like look at things and go, oh, that's what it's doing. And it's amazing. Like, look at that thing go. Yeah. I can't believe it. Right. It's just so cool that there's a little tiny, you know, robot in there on the scale of nanometers that's calculating yeah. stuff and deciding its next move. Absolutely insane. But uh, my next question for you is what's one of the best things that's happened to you personally since you started um, being a part of Hacker VA? I'd say badge. I mean, that, that's, that's, it's topical, but it's, it's true. Um, I think it's definitely up there. I, when I was first, you know, when I wasn't quite into electronics yet, it was really good exposure to see and I start to understand how that worked and to be a part of, of pick and place and figuring out, okay, this is how electronics are built. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you go to school for computer engineering, it, it's, 
you know, it's an electronics degree, but it's not an electronics degree. There are electronics degrees where you learn how to lay out circuit boards and you learn how to build stuff and you, you know, assemble stuff and you have that hands-on sort of appreciation. Right. Mine is a true bachelor's of science. A lot of it's theory and there's not a lot of, you know, actual implementation of, well, there's implementation, but there's not, you know, building a circuit board and stuff like that. That's kind of left right. up to the manufacturing side of things. At least that's the idea. Mm-hmm. And so it was really, really great exposure to start to see how stuff actually got done in the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it was, it was actually, you know, this a year ago when I first, well, not quite a year ago, but eight months ago, when I, we first started talking about it, um, and me taking over it, it was, it's gone from a learning opportunity, you know, for me to get an appreciation for it to the exact opposite. It's an opportunity for me to, to practice and it's still learning for me, but to, to practice what I've learned at work in an environment that's very different. Um, it was really, really good at great exercise and value engineering and uh, working with other people and, and coordinating with other people. And um, it's just such uh, a great opportunity mm-hmm. for for growth, I think, for everyone who gets involved in it. It's good, it's good exposure if you're on the fringes. If you want to get in deeper, you can get in as deep as you want. And now that you know, I'm in the place in my life where I can kind of take charge and I know what I'm doing, it's a great opportunity to express and explore and try new things. Like I, I had never messed with a, a Pico before, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's you know, it's just so many new things to be able to try and work with and learn. Oh yeah, absolutely. Which is, so, uh, as you mentioned prior, you were a theater kid. I am technically still a theater kid now, like theater education. So being Mm -hmm. a teacher and like, I had never messed with most of the stuff I messed with inside the makerspace, whether that be Arduinos, Raspberry Pis, laser cutters, CNC machines, none of that I had messed with until I started working here. But now I have experience with all of those. (laughs) Obviously, most of my experience is just surface level, but I could go head first and dive as deep as I wanted to in these. Yeah, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that. One of the, you know, while I was transitioning from my theater degree over to my electronics degree, mm-hmm. well, my computer engineering degree, that's not undersell myself. <laughs> but, um, the, uh, I, I know how really, I know how the buses on computers work. That's, oh God, it's so, <laughs> such a mess. Oh, man. All right. Anyway. I'm, I'm like the assembly guy at work and it's, it's ridiculous. Mm, I got you. Anyway, so when, um, we had, when I was one of the last productions I worked on, there was this clock that had to like go to the right location. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, it ended up being this, it was, you know, it was like an active prop and somebody's, um, like boyfriend, helped out with it. Like, I think it was like the stage manager's boyfriend or maybe the prop designer's boyfriend or something like that. Right. And they, um, they made it out of this Arduino that was going to like, you know, move around and they were trying to use like a hall effect sensor with a magnet to detect where it was. And, um, they were really, really struggling with it. And I wasn't quite at a, a point where I could just jump in and help with it. Mm-hmm. But, um, God, that was such a silly thing. I, looking back at it now, I mean, I could have, bang that out in a night now yeah <laughs> you know a couple of things laying around a motor and you're done yeah it's that's crazy that that i haven't even thought about that project for such a long time well bringing back memories on this podcast but um my next question for you is what is one of the hidden pitfalls in terms of either creating making electronics that really 
causes people to fail? Oh man. Um, I think the thing that really depends on the person and what the mm. project is, it, it, it comes down to, I think a couple of things. I think a lot of projects die before they start because right. it's so hard to figure out where to start on something. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other flip side is, God, I don't know. There, there's so many weird hidden things. I think one of the big ones is let's talk about, let's talk about getting into electronics specifically. Okay. Cause I think I have something to say about that. When, when you first, you know, think, Oh, I'm going to get into electronics. And you're like, I'm going to get into an Arduino or a raspberry Pi. And you know, you, you've programmed in Python on the Pi and you flip some, you know, do some things over the pins and, yeah. you know, or you get an Arduino and you go into the Arduino IDE and you, you use some, I think it's right pin and read pin and you're like, Oh, I'm doing stuff. Yeah. Um, and you know, that that's all fun in DIY. Um, and then a lot of times that works just fine, mm-hmm. but there is, I think, a if you start with that approach and, and you start with that experience with um, doing electronics, when it comes time to do, I, I would, I don't want to say real electronic cause it's all real, but um, maybe a more hardcore stuff like mm-hmm. what I do at work. Um, it's such a, a huge learning curve. Like the jumps in, in knowledge are so big. Right. Um, you know, it's great nowadays that we have stuff that's more intermediate, like platform IO is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there's, I think, a better ladder of tools today than there was when I started working. Because when I started getting into all this, it was basically Arduino. If you wanted to get into microcontrollers, if you wanted to get into microprocessors, it was the Raspberry Pi. And you went from basically writing Python and or Arduino code to like bare metal or, you know, full on C, you know, Linux, embedded Linux development. Right. And there was really no in between. Um, and the resources were really, really bad at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, if you didn't already know what you were doing, I mean, the Arduino was so great from the perspective of somebody who, um, you know, it made it so much easier to go through the process as somebody who already knew how to work with microcontrollers to go from nothing to a project that worked. Right. But um, I think coming from the other direction, there's just such a steep learning curve that that um, it's so there are so many points along the way where I think you feel like you're getting good and you're, you're doing something, you think you know what you're doing and then you try and make the next step, whether that's, you know, you have a, you start using a, you know, maybe you have a bootloader and you want to have it be updatable Mm -hmm. or, you know, it's got to be really, 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 really reliable for out, you know, days, months, years at a time, or um, maybe you need to do low power modes and the tools that just make it great, make it easy to just get going start to break down mm. and you have to start, you know, you go from an art, you know, you're programming at the Arduino you know, level to now you're, you got to read the data sheet. You got to figure out what registers control the, the sleep modes. You got to figure out, you know, then you put it in the sleep mode and suddenly when you wake back up, you immediately hard fault because your UR peripheral has stalled and is stuck in an interrupt handler. And it's just, uh, it's just a mess. Yeah. And there's, um, I think with electronics, it's, 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 it's this classic case of, you know, it's so accessible and there's, it's become so, even the microcontroller world has become so abstracted that it's easy to kind of get into it, but that doesn't mean it's not really complicated underneath and it still is. Mm-hmm. And when people hit those walls where something hasn't been done for them, that is, um, or it's not been made available at the skill level that they're at, mm-hmm. it can be really, really disheartening because you run into it, a situation you run into it and you have no idea how you're going to get past, you know, some deep compiler, you know, bug on that particular architecture or some register level nonsense that, 
nobody in their right mind would like to work on. Yeah. And I think in the electronics world specifically, when those, you know, those jumps in difficulty or those, those walls are hit, I think it'd be really, really disheartening. And it's hard to, I think, find answers when you run into those, if mm-hmm. you're not already at least a programming professional, if not an embedded programming professional. Right. So, but that's one of the great things about like a makerspace is that if you, you've got a good makerspace, like we have, I'd say probably about a dozen or so people who are really, really strong, either embedded programmers or low level programmers or systems programmers mm-hmm. who maybe they don't know exactly your issue, but have developed the skills of knowing where to look in the data sheet and knowing where to go and find the resources and can, you know, or, you know, maybe can find that one <laughs> that the, uh, like the one, you know, uh, diff from years ago yeah. that addressed it and then it got broken again or, or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, there's one of those, like, there's like this language difference between people who, you know, when you know where to look for your research and that's all, it's the, it's the research problem. I guess yeah. you can put it that way. When you, when you are just getting started on researching a new thing, you have no idea what to look for. Oh, yeah. And with all the embedded, you know, ease of use that has come, I think there's still a very difficult jump from um, being able to use a pre-made thing to being able to find the answers of the weird stuff. Oh, that absolutely. And really get in people's ways. So kind of harkening back to whenever you were talking about getting discouraged when you encounter an issue that isn't really talked about and stuff like that. So most people suffer from imposter syndrome from time to time, especially mm-hmm. when they encounter these issues. Do you have a way that you get past that imposter syndrome and like conquer that fear that you may have if there is failure? Uh- well, I mean, it's it's tempting to always counter imposter syndrome with just overwhelming arrogance, right? <laughs> but that's that's not really sustainable. And ultimately, you know, you run into something and it shatters your shatters your worldview if you've right. got that. So, you know, I, I think there's just that's that I think that's a really difficult journey for, mm-hmm. for everyone. I think I personally kind of came over the the imposter syndrome and and that and to the extent I have at least Mm -hmm. by just recognizing that and just accepting that, that things are really, really complicated and really, really hard. And it didn't take one person, you know, like, 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 you know, I don't know how to do lithography to make the processors (laughs) that I work on. Right. But it did, it wasn't like it took one person, you know, there maybe, you know, a, you know, a couple years in the professional, you know, sense to go from, not really knowing how to do that to knowing how to do that and being as good as it is. It took hundreds of people, thousands and thousands and thousands of hours over decades of their lives, beating their head against the same problem and making incremental advances. And the stuff that we're doing, right. Is it's, it's so hard when you think about it as an individual to just grasp all the complexity. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of beyond you know, it's a lot of the problems I, I'm looking at are at the limits of what I can grok at one time. Mm-hmm. And so for, um, a, and, or the skills that I have that, um, I have to be able to rely on other people. And, and it's, I think comforting to know that people who are, you know, if you feel like I, when I feel like I am not good enough at something or that I, you know, I haven't, 
I don't understand something as well as I, I have. I've got to remind myself that I am ultimately, I'm two years into my professional career. I've spent about five years of my life studying this specifically. Mm-hmm. And the stuff that I'm trying to understand has been, you know, there are people, it, it was set up by teams of people who have decades of experience uh, collectively. And there's just no competing with that. Mm-hmm. I actually just, and one of the, I'll throw this one out at you. I always, um, I don't know if you're familiar with VI. Uh it's a text editor. Okay. Yeah. It's a, like an old school Unix text editor. It's, mm-hmm. it's like a terminal window text editor style right. stuff. Um, uh, you probably encountered nano at least once in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate nano. <laughs> I, I just do. Um, and I much prefer VI, but I've never gotten good with VI. And VI is one of those things like, you know, when, when, when Hollywood, like um, when Hollywood like creates a hacker scene, it's always ridiculous. Right. 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 But, but VI is kind of like that when you get good with, well, VI or Vim or, or, or NeoVim, I'm personally using NeoVim. Mm-hmm. And when you get good with it, it starts to look like that because you move, it's all, you know, keys. There's no real use of the mouse. There's no use of the arrow keys out. You can use them, but it's not really how you're supposed to do, use mm-hmm. it. And so, you know, basically you sit mostly on the home row and you just type and you can move around on the screen and you can do these really complicated replacements and you can move blocks of stuff around and you can jump from bracket to bracket and you can navigate all without leaving the home row or pretty close to it. Right. And um, I started getting really frustrated with the tools I was using um, because I just had so much trouble navigating large amounts of code and dealing with large amounts of code. And um, I was, I just watched some random YouTube video. <laughs> I think it was by the primogen of them just doing some stuff. And it was crazy just how fast they were, they were. It was like watching a hacker scene, right? Yeah. And so for a long time, I've actually felt like I'm not a real programmer because I don't know how to use VI. So I've recently started learning how to use the, the Vim motions and, and all those hotkeys. And I, there's plugins for VS Code and, and uh, Eclipse and IntelliJ to, at least in the text that are be able to use those motions. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of replaced everything and used all those. So now I'm kind of stuck in it. And um, I got to tell you, it's really hard. <laughs> and there, it's you know but i'm able to tell myself okay well it's effortless for them because they've spent thousands and thousands of hours working at it right you know it's not it shouldn't affect my personal sense of self that i haven't yet spent a thousand hours you know typing in <laughs> vim and using those motions and practicing and you know being good at um touch typing and, and using that that you know it's it's okay that i'm not there yet and there's still work to be done right and I'm, and if it's really important to you, right. If, you know, if, if it is, it, since it seems to be important to me that I can do that. And that feels like a skill that's going to be important. So, you know, it's not just a should thing. It should is really tempting, but should is kind of ex- an external pressure. I think a lot of times, Right. but this has become a, I really want to be good at that. And I see the value in it and I'm putting the effort in it and it's going to take me quite a bit of time. It's, it's mm-hmm. like learning an instrument. It's complete pain. <laughs> yeah. I understand that. <laughs> like, uh, Obviously, I don't have as much experience as you, but I have been working on a personal project for a pair of haptic feedback VR gloves. Okay. And so basically, I've been working with the code with that to try and make Mm -hmm. everything work. Sometimes it doesn't work, and that is very disheartening. (laughs) But, you know, you just got to keep pushing through it and then hope for that final product at the end. Right, right. Because I'm basing my design off of... um, I forget the creator, but uh, the name of the project they have is uh, Lucid VR. 
it's on mm-hmm. uh, hackaday.io. Yep. And he he's actually at MIT now working with their VR department. So I'm, yeah, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. Yeah. MIT, those guys are out of their minds. You know who's actually, I think the bigger nerds are though. Hmm. I don't know if you've ever met anyone from RIT, the Rochester Institute of Technology. I have not. Okay. Rochester is like in the, it's, it's not in the middle of nowhere, but it's like upstate New York and mm-hmm. it's cold. Like the yeah. whole school year is just cold. Yeah. <laughs> and especially, you know, the fall semester, early spring semester, there's like nothing. It's like one of those, you know, you go to school in the middle of nowhere. Well, it's, it's not in the middle of nowhere, but it might as well be yeah, just because yeah. How much you know? How oppressive it is, and um, I don't know. Every person I've met from RIT has just been the biggest nerd ever, <laughs> and they're great. I love them. It's yeah. just so satisfying. But yeah, MIT MIT guys are are out of their minds too. Oh, absolutely. My last question for you today is: What is the best piece of advice that anyone has given you? Ooh, there's so many little pieces of advice. I I I think I've got one that's topical and one that's not so topical. Okay. Um, Let's both. One of the the ones that um, I got, I think, about a year ago, and it's not maybe it's not a, the mo- the best piece of advice ever, but it was I think change you know a little bit changing for me was um, that I, I was really feeling overwhelmed at work, and I my life was 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 entirely work, mm-hmm. and I was kind of I was really struggling with that, and I was trying to figure out like, what I was going to do about it, and somebody I, I kind of knew through the grapevine essentially told me that you know, your, your life can't be work. Right. But that doesn't mean you can't like avoid work. You, you can't go to work or not have a job. Right. And so he kind of just told me that the, what I needed to do was to just get really, really, really good at my job so that I didn't have to spend a lot of time um, thinking about it Mm. and that it wasn't that much effort. And that's, I think that's one of those kind of weird things. Like, you know, you see my parents, for example, they do chores and they are so good at it. Like they'll, they'll do the amount of chores that it'll take me an hour in 10, 15 minutes. Right. And it's not because I'm bad at chores. It's just, they've spent, you know, 40 years, 50 years doing chore, those chores and they've gotten really, really good at it. And that's how they have time. And so, um, it's not maybe revolutionary or like advice, but, um, it was really an answer to how do I have time to do anything? And the answer was you just practice and you've got to practice and get good at it. Um, and so I've really spent a lot of time at, at trying to get faster and more practiced at the common things mm-hmm. so that I don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. I don't have to, you know, go and look up stuff every time I, you know, um, one of the reasons I'm doing, you know, the, all this work with Vim is so that I can get faster Mm-hmm. So that I have more time to do things that aren't work. And so um, whatever it is that you need to practice on at work, I would say, you know, the, 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 the advice I got was get back, get good at work, which is not good <laughs> advice. But the takeaway from that is, you know, the, the less effort you have to spend doing this, you know, you're gonna spend a lot of your time engineering doing the same things over and over again. So get good at those things so that you have time to do the things that are interesting and that um, really bring you joy and, and propel you forward. Right. The other piece of advice, this is more general life advice. And it's really, really, <laughs> it's, it was my mom's, every time I'd leave the house, it's what my mom told, told me. And it's very short. Um, she said, always said, um, make, you know, life is full of choices. Mm-hmm. Some choices are life changing and some choices are life ending make good choices. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, that's a lot of pressure to put on yeah. a teenager <laughs> trying to go out and have a good amount of time. But 
it's been really it's been some weird it's weirdly it's been something to fall back on for not making rash choices and mm. and making sure that you're not doing something silly right um and that you really do want to do something and that can i think come into play when it comes into play in two places places mm-hmm. one when you're going to make a big choice it's it's important because it lets you think about it. it reminds you you know hey this is this could be a big direction shift and so it gives you that appreciation for before i make this choice on maybe where like don't take like think it through don't just take the first apartment that you know maybe accepts you right or um you know don't go to the first school that accepts you maybe mm-hmm. you know really make sure that you are looking at your choices and thinking through them and the flip side of that is that not all choices that are life changing they're not all big choices right mm-hmm. and a lot of little choices make a difference um and so i try and do it's it's a mindfulness exercise really right and you know when it when when you go up to critique somebody when you when you see a project at your makerspace and you're like oh that's interesting and you go over you know remember that you you may not know who that person is and you may not know what their project is and how much experience they have and so if you go over there and you're really judgmental who what maybe they that is a really really good idea and you've just killed it yeah or you know you've you know the flip all sorts of stuff like that so just being aware of life's choices i think is is what my mom always told me and i really like the succinct way that she put it because it sounds insane when you hear it and it's really disheartening but it, it really comes back to mindfulness and and um just thinking through things when you need to absolutely that honestly i hadn't thought about it that way until you just said that and that's yeah you don't really think about that until you hear it wow but at this point that has been all of my questions i'd like to offer a offer this to you to tell us a bit about yourself and about hacker va yeah. So real quick. So I am a, um, I, so I graduated from, from VCU in Richmond with a degree in, in computer engineering. I'm now an embedded systems engineer at a company called PCS in Ashland, Virginia. We make automotive controllers and, um, it's been a really great opportunity to, to learn how to do all this stuff. Um, some people, you know, you go in, you do a lot of, um, I think out of college, you can, a lot of people go and they, they do a, a number of different things. And sometimes those careers are, there's a lot of startups I know that snap up people out of out, right. out of school and stuff like that. And this isn't a big company, but it's still at one of those industries that, you know, it's safety is, is important. Mm-hmm. It's really been great to, to have uh, an environment where when I'm building something, it's got to be safe. Mm-hmm. And so you really think about that kind of stuff and, um, and the reliability. And so I, I really like what I do and I'm, I really enjoy what I do, but I also enjoy doing it in my spare time. And um, so I, I have a whole bunch of audio projects that I work on. I, I love uh, the world of audio. It's what got me into all this. And I, when I have time, I can focus on that. And I, I try, I build some speakers. I build a little headphone amplifier that I haven't quite worked all the kinks out with mm-hmm. yet. And um, I, I really enjoy doing that. And um, I'm a mega nerd. I try and read a lot as well about, about technology and, and specifically about some of the hardware stuff that right. is going to get me to where I want to be. Um, Hack RVA is, of, if <laughs> we've been talking about it, but just as a quick pitch, it is a, um, a nonprofit member-run makerspace in Richmond, Virginia. We have um, 
uh, we have a really big community push, but we, um, or focus, we do a lot of, um, we focus a lot on community and community events and um, fostering that sense of community and having people. But we also, we of course do actual projects as well. So we do, we do a lot of uh, electronics. We do a lot of standard 3D printing. We've got a laser cutter. We have a big wood shop and we do a lot of soft goods and fabric stuff as well. We have a fabric room and um, all sorts of stuff like that. So um, we do open houses every every Thursday night. If you're at all interested in any of that stuff and you're in the Richmond area, you're welcome to stop by. We always have somebody there um, right now. And um, I, I would love to see you and answer any questions you have or just listen to you and your ideas and and, and uh, meet new people and learn new things. That's all what it's all about. That's great. So with that, this has been the UNT MindSpark podcast with our segment on... Maker Life Stories. I've been your host, Jared Johnson. Joining me today has been Peter from HackRVA, and I hope you have a great rest of your evening.